award-winning Tennessee Wildcast is on the air with the latest on hunting, fishing, boating, wildlife watching, and all things outdoors. Make welcome your host, drummer and outdoor expert novice, Jason Harmon. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Tennessee Wildcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for watching, for listening. we got a great show lined up for you today. It's all about the Tennessee cave salamander, yes, Don. Yes, yes. Looking forward to this. I'm excited to learn about this uh, this creature and uh, that many people don't see. I know, so, yeah. I uh, don't know if I'll ever see one, except <laughs> in a photo or some videos. Uh, just recently, Barry Krause went out with uh, Dustin and got some footage and uh, put together a little video. And they didn't see one that day. They saw one, couldn't get it on camera. But, oh, okay. But uh, it's neat to be able to watch these guys work, and oh, we're going to talk about it today. I know it. Yeah, behind the scenes, well, under the scenes sometimes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, so welcome, Dustin. Thanks yeah, for having me. Yeah, Dustin Thames, uh, he's a biodiversity coordinator for Region 2, and uh, we're going to dive into this today. But first, Don, want, you wanted to uh, highlight our radio Yeah, station. yeah, kind of good, circling back to our flagship, WJJM, right there in Lewisburg, Tennessee. And uh, Jeff and Missy Hayslip uh, holding the fort down there yeah. and uh, doing a great job serving the community. They do a, a great job with that radio station, local sports and all that sort of thing, and they carry Wildcast Extra and the full show, mm -hmm. and uh, we appreciate that very much. They also, every year, do a uh, huge promotion for Hunters for the Hungry. Raise yep. a lot of money there with a local wildlife officer, and uh, and all that money goes to help feed uh, uh, hungry folks in the fall and uh, help, help hunters be able to donate their deer uh, and... Uh, Pays for pays for the processing basically for yeah. that, so hunters can can donate, feel good about it, and uh, people get fed. Hey, it's a win win deal. Yeah, it's it's big for that community. I think a lot of the folks that uh, everybody that, comes out. For yeah, that. everybody comes out, and everybody uh, a lot of people benefit from that in that community. So it's good. Yeah, good that's, fundraising, that's good uh, good efforts there. Uh, another thing I wanted to t highlight before we get too far into the show, uh, if you're watching, uh, tune in now. Because we have some new hats, Don. I love these hats. The Wildcast hats are in. Uh, this is our second edition, but our first edition in the in the e-store. So shop.gooutdoorstennessee.com. Uh-huh. Uh, sign in there. You can purchase one of these hats if you're a Tennessee Wildcast listener, watcher. <laughs> if you enjoy the show, want to support us. Right there is your hat, and Dustin has one. He's going to wear it proudly and share, uh, show folks uh, wherever he goes that you should tune into this show and need to buy a hat while you're at it. If you're just <laughs> listening on the radio, it's a dark gray, very yep. attractive dark gray, and it's got the Wildcast logo on it, embossed and huge stitching, and it's just it just pops. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's an awesome-looking hat. It's got the... The logo on the front there and, and a kind of a patch thing, so it's it's cool. Yeah, love it. Yeah, uh, it's great to have those. Also, it is deer season. Just want to remind folks, if you're out there or want to get outside this fall, deer season is, is – uh, the archery season is open. It runs through October 28th and then takes a break for the youth season. Right. October 29th through the 30th. And then opens back up for archery October 31st through November 4th. Uh, and during this time, you can chase turkeys with a, with archery equipment, and the, uh, but you can also chase them with a shotgun October 15th through the 28th, so a limited shotgun season during the fall. And if you've never fall turkey hunted, 
We've got some uh, tips and tricks from Matt uh, Dale. Yeah. Remember from a, a previous Wildcast. He had some really good information on there. So it, even if you're not going to, he's an entertaining guy. Go back and listen to that one. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, he's a lot of fun. Got a lot of good feedback from those shows. A couple of shows we did with him on how to call, uh, the most deadliest call in the fall. <laughs> and uh, that's, you know, how to, how to call in those gobblers in the fall. And then uh, uh, the other one was just. Uh, uh, more tips on fall turkey right, hunting. So right. it's it's good stuff. Go check out those shows if you missed them. All right. I think that covers the seasons. Remember tnwildlife.org, uh, the button there on the homepage for uh, the hunting guide is there. Check the hunting guide. Know your rules, regs, yes. which licenses you need. Check those dates. Uh, all that information is on our website. Yep. All right, Dustin. All the public service announcements are over. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Down to business. We're excited to have you here. Introduce yourself to folks. Let them know who you are and, and what you do for the agency and how and kind of how you got here. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me out today. You bet. Um, started with the agency back in 2007. Started it down at uh, Normandy Fish Hatchery, working with um, Nathan Singer, Todd St. John, all those great folks down there. I worked there for about five years, and then I moved over to the biodiversity department, and I've been here ever since. All right. So where did you uh, where did you study? Uh, I'm Golden Eagle. Golden I've Eagle. Got my bachelor's degree at Tennessee Tech, All but right. but I'm also a UT volunteer. Uh, back in 2020, while I'm working full time, I earned a master's degree. Awesome. So pretty proud of that, and glad to be a volunteer. How too. about them volunteers right now? They're oh, doing well. Man, they're doing great. <laughs> Loving it. Uh, that's pretty exciting right now for Tennessee fans, but uh, we won't linger on that one too long. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, were you originally wanting to be a, a fisheries biologist and then kind of ventured back into biodiversity, or how did that work out? Oh, man. You know, I just love wildlife. Um, I love fisheries, grew up fishing, love fishing. A job became available. I said, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think I've always had an interest in um, the critters that you don't see very much that uh -huh. a lot of people don't think about, mm -hmm. salamanders, bats, um, things like that. And so when the job opened up in biodiversity, I thought it was a cool opportunity to learn more uh -huh. about these animals yeah. and, and sort of follow that side of my passion as well. Cool. So yeah. what about your degree, your master's degree? What's that in? Uh, it's in wildlife and fishery science. Okay. My thesis research was on tricolored bats. Okay. And, uh, looked at the foraging range of tricolored bats down at Bear Hollow Mountain Wildlife Management. Okay, yeah. Well, you, now that, since you mentioned that, that was kind of on our, our list of things to hit on if we had enough time, but let's go ahead and hit it. Tri the tricolored bat you were mentioning is, is possibly uh, – could go to the endangered list. To explain what's going on there with that. that That's bat. right. Yeah, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they proposed uh, to list the tricolored bat as federally endangered. Mm. That's protected under the Endangered Species Act. And back before white-nose syndrome was introduced into Tennessee, it was really a common bat. Um, we would see it in the summer quite a bit. And it's kind of like the white-tailed deer of caves. It's a generalist. It likes cold caves. It likes warm caves. And, and if you go into a cave and see a bat, chances are it's a tricolored bat, even today. Mm. But when white-nose syndrome was introduced, we've lost about 90% of the tricolored bats in Tennessee wow. to this disease. Huh. Wow. A huge impact. And so this listing... Uh, it's it's a bad thing that we've lost so many bats, but if it does get listed, this will provide federal money for us to protect caves and do a lot more monitoring uh, to make sure that their populations aren't totally crashing. Uh huh. Wow. Well, that's good. That's good that there's money available and, and resources there to to help protect them and and do make you know put some efforts toward them. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, well, let's get into the Tennessee cave salamander, which I thought was pretty cool uh, that Tennessee has its own cave salamander. It's not just the cave salamander. It's Tennessee's cave salamander. That, <laughs> and it's it's seen in a, a certain region of, of Tennessee and some in North Alabama. But let's just jump in. Tell folks what they are and, and a little bit about them, and then we'll dive into some more questions I've got. All right, well, first off, we do have a cave salamander, uh, just the cave salamander, and it's uh, a different genus than the Tennessee cave salamander. Um, so the Tennessee cave salamander, it's a troglobite. Lives its entire life underground in caves, never sees the light of day. Um, it occurs in about 91 sites in uh, Tennessee, Alabama, and uh, northwest Georgia. Okay. So really restricted range uh-huh. and only known from a few caves. Wow. And um, what I think is cool that I, I learned recently is that they, they never adapt into the full salamander. It's, it's, it's kind of in a, a middle stage. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you think of the etymology of the word amphibian, that means two lives, right? So think about frogs. They're, they come from eggs, and then they live in a larval stage, the tadpole, uh-huh. and then they grow legs and become adults. Well, most salamanders are the same way. But uh, some salamanders are neotenic, and that means that uh, they become reproductive in the larval stage. And huh. so these Tennessee cave salamanders, they'll have external gills on the side of their head, just bright, uh, fleshy appendages, and that's how they breathe. And uh, they keep that into adulthood, you know, even when they're, re- when they're reproductive. Hmm. So it's pretty unusual for salamanders. What about vision? Is, do they have need for vision? They don't have much of a need for it, but they do have eyes, and uh, some laboratory experiments have found that they do uh, respond to light. So huh. their eyes, they can still see to some degree. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's the state amphibian, right? That's right. It was designated the state amphibian back in 95. 95. And um, there's been some recent, uh, I say recent, in the last, what, 2005 is not that really recent anymore. <laughs> but there was a, a, a professor who did some work and, and started studying these these sites and found new sites. And tell us a little bit about his work. And, and that's who y'all went out with just recently in Murray County, right? Yeah, Dr. Matt Miller. He's currently uh, a professor at the University of Alabama Huntsville, but he got his uh, master's degree at MTSU and went on to get his doctorate at UT. But at MTSU, he studied Tennessee cave salamanders, and he basically went out doing surveys in a lot of caves in Tennessee and found a lot of new sites for Tennessee cave salamanders. And he also did a lot of genetic work on them, um, sort of looking at their relationship with other salamanders in the state. So a lot of interesting work. And it's always fun to get out with him, like at Yanali. He's, you know, really the world's expert on Tennessee cave salamanders and one of the leading experts on cave life in general. He's such a nice guy, fun to be around. So always enjoy being out with Dr. Niemiller. That's got to be like Christmas Day when you guys enter a cave and you you find – the cave, Tennessee cave salamander, you know, or, or, or another species that you weren't expecting to find there that's, that uh, you hadn't seen in a while. That's just got to be so exciting. It is, you know, and, and Dr. Niemiller is really passionate and sort of share that passion. So when you find <laughs> one, you're like, oh, how much does it weigh? Is it a male? Is it a female? Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's cool to see. And these, these species, you know, that we're searching for, they're so cryptic. They may occur in a site, but 
are you able to find it? You never know. So it's kind of like a needle in a haystack, and it, it is always exciting. Probably a lot of luck like. involved, I guess, besides knowing where the habitat is that you're looking for for these things, too, right? Oh, absolutely. Luck's involved. Are you going to flip the right rock? Yeah, yeah. right, right. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. So you, you say flipping a rock. Are they, are they in water most of the time? Are they out of water? What's their environment look like inside this cave? Yeah, they live in underground streams okay. and um, typically clear, well-oxygenated streams underground. And they can come out of the water for a short time, but uh, they can't live outside of the water. So they're dependent on that underground stream for their entire life. Okay. And what, what kind of stuff are you looking for when you find them? That's, what do you, are you, uh, photographs maybe, uh, you know, the health? What are you studying about that animal, about that that Tennessee cave salamander? Well, you know, we'll get the normal stuff. We'll weigh it and get a length. And Dr. Matt Niemiller, he's taken a, a small tip of the tail. Okay. We'll, we'll take a tissue sample, and he's doing a lot of genetic work on them um, just to see if there's any inbreeding, things like that, and, and to look at um, – it's a relationship with other similar species. Okay. Do some of those tests uh, show the health of the, the cave or kind of help determine if the cave is healthy? You know, well, all the, the streams that flow underground, all that water originates above ground. Okay. Right? And it goes into sinkholes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if there's anything on the surface that may, you know, in, impact the water quality that's going to impact the health of the salamanders so you know it's all dependent on the landscape around the sinkhole so you know if there aren't very many tennessee cave salamanders that may be you know a threat that we look at what's happening on the surface sure that could be impacting the the water quality that's uh keep tennessee beautiful i've always liked that phrase uh if we keep our waters and our lands healthy up here, it'll be healthy for the salamander sounds like yeah that's exactly right yeah yeah that's pretty cool so out of 90 sites, uh, or 91, I think you mentioned that they found these, these salamanders. Do they move? Do they move from cave to cave? Are these caves connected, sites connected, or are they isolated in these areas? We don't really know. Um, it's probably some are connected and some are. You know, um, we can only go in one cave and be able to stay in that one cave, but then water's flowing probably from cave to cave and, and also, you know, deep underground and aquifers. But it's really unknown if the Tennessee cave salamander can move from one cave to an aquifer and then get into another cave. We don't know how mobile uh-huh. they are. Uh-huh. Um, you know, most salamanders really don't move a whole lot, maybe a couple hundred meters yeah. their entire life. Mm. But you never know. They may... Um, the flow of the water may wash them from one cave to another. We really don't know. But that's one of the things that we can look at in the, um, in the tissue samples is, is there gene flow between populations? So Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and good gene flow is good, uh-huh. uh, good genetic diversity. Then if there's um, some catastrophic event, they can adapt to it. Mm-hmm. So... While in this cave, uh, the recent dive y'all did, I guess, can you call it a dive? Dive into these caves or? or it was a wade. A wade. <laughs> a wade, a wade okay. into the cave. I'm terrified of cave diving. So, <laughs> uh, What is it? Splunking or whatever it's called? Splunking. Um, it was in Murray County. Uh, did you find anything else? Did you find anything else cool in there or, or uh, evidence of other animals and things that, that uh, I guess probably some some that you're familiar with but what all did you find while you were diving in this one yeah it's it's really neat the cave ecosystem so 
for the most part, if there's no water flowing through a cave, there's not a lot of nutrients there. Uh Not a lot of nutrients, not a lot of life. But some caves, you know, we talked about water flowing from the surface. When that water flows into the cave, it'll bring plant matter and other organic material. And that's sort of the the base of the food chain in the Uh cave. Mm -hmm. So you get that detritus in there, and then you start getting invertebrates. And and caves are kind of like little ecological islands. The animals that live inside a cave, they can't really go out above ground and go to another cave. Right. So they kind of adapt to that cave environment it's like where they are. like their little city. <laughs> yeah. And so there will be these um, invertebrates that occur in just one or two caves in Tennessee and nowhere else in the world. Huh. But but once you start getting those invertebrates, you can stop, start getting the top predators like Tennessee cave salamanders. So, yeah, in, in the cave on Yanali, we found uh, several cave beetles, isopods, amphipods, lots of these small invertebrates that, you know, they're tiny. Uh-huh. You have to get your head about a foot from the ground and really focus your eyes to find them, or you would have no idea they're there. <laughs> And you, and you said you know you're 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 pretty tight to the ground in this cave. Uh, you said you were wading through it or or you know crawling through this area. When people think of caves, they think of huge openings or large uh, large uh, just openings inside. Cavernous. Yeah, inside of a rock wall or something. Yeah. But you're you're on your hands and knees in a lot of places, sliding through rocks. To explain, kind of talk about some of these areas y'all dive into or, or crawl through. Yeah, you know. Uh, the caves, all caves are different. Some are big boreholes that you can walk in, and those are pretty easy. You like those. <laughs> but then uh, some, you know, you're on your knees crawling for 100 feet, uh, sometimes crawling through water, and then it opens up to a big borehole. And, uh, you know, of course, other caves you're using ropes to rappel into. Um, but there's one cave on uh, Bridgestone Firestone that I recall. You get there, and the hole is maybe a foot by a foot, maybe a foot by two foot, and you really have to squeeze into it. And the first time I went in it, I thought, oh, man, am I going to make it? I really don't know. But then once you get in there, you crawl a little ways, and it opens up to a big borehole, so it's a sigh of relief. Oh, yeah, this will be easy. But then you got to get back out. But That would be my worry. As I'm on my way in, I'd be thinking... Am I going to be able to get out of here? (laughs) What you always go head first and leave somebody behind you so they can grab your feet and pull you if you can't make it. Uh, That's the important thing. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I I mean, it's if and if it's going down, let's go. This will be easy. I can go down, but to get back up sometimes is a struggle. Uh Wow. So, um, just so folks know, uh, you know the caves that that TWRA owns or its own TWRA properties, they're closed, right? To, to normal traffic. They normal, are. Yeah. They're closed to, vi- uh, to visitation, to recreation. And, you know, I think our mission with TWRA is to, to manage and protect the species that right. live in these areas. Yep. And that's, you know, that's our primary focus. Now, um, state parks, they do have some caves that are open by permit. Hmm. So you can contact your local park, you know, and, and get with them and, you know, take the Boy Scouts. Uh, take your friends, admire these beautiful underground places, um, but know that there's a lot of animals there that need to be protected. Right, right. And I think one of the big reasons some of these are closed and and off limits is because you all take certain precautions when you go in and out of these caves not to disturb certain things or go in at the wrong times or to... Or contaminate. Right, exactly. Cross-contaminate 
cave to cave, that so, kind of thing. Yeah, talk a little bit about what you do to protect these caves when y'all are going in them. I and you're going in for a good reason, but you also take precautions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a great point. You know, white nose syndrome, we found out, was native to Europe. And it was actually introduced into North America mm. back in 2006. So it's an introduced uh, fungus wow. that's led to a disease that's killed millions of bats. And, you know, that was a really eye-opening moment for us as biologists studying these uh, fragile ecosystems. It's like, well, number one, we don't want to spread white-nose syndrome from cave to cave. Number two, we don't know what else we might potentially carry from cave to cave. Uh-huh. So, yeah, after every cave, we'll, uh, we'll take our clothes, our boots, anything exposed to dirt, and we'll wash it. And we actually end up having to decontaminate that gear. Um, we can boil our clothes. Uh, and then wash them, of course, make sure there's no pathogens or, you know, fungus, bacteria, or at least limit what's left over on our clothes. And then our flashlights and all that, we spray with Clorox, make uh-huh. sure it's all decontaminated, too. Wow. Uh, some pretty uh, high-tech gear you probably have to have to go into some of these and take that with the withstand that decontamination process <laughs> yeah you know buy good flashlights aluminum <laughs> housings you know make sure you can spray them down and they'll survive yep yeah that's pretty cool well um so generally we want people to stay out of caves uh to you know protect and not move disease around and things like that but uh, uh they are pretty cool and there are like you said there's options with state parks and some other places that you can get permits to go in there. Uh, and we talked about it earlier. I, I think it's it's fun. Uh, like the Lost Sea, they have a cave. That's There's some that are open that are more like a tourist attraction type thing. And you can right. kind of see a cave and see some of the stuff that's going on and, uh, you know, see some of the, the wildlife that live in those caves. They're pretty cool. And, you know, there are also uh, caving organizations called grottos. And you can, you know, uh, look on Google, you know, find your local grotto, get with them. These are uh, recreational caving experts. They know good recreational caves to go to, and um, and a lot of them are very um, mindful of, um, you know, spreading disease and, uh-huh. and potential impacts they can have on the environment. And there's uh, an organization called Southeastern Cave Conservancy. They own a lot of caves. They lease a lot of caves, but you can get a permit through them to visit the caves recreationally. And these are all good options if you want to. Uh, recreating caves. And I'm sure there's a lot of education involved in those kind of organizations, too. They're not going to let you just go willy-nilly in with, with without being prepared and, That's exactly and knowing right. what you're doing. That's exactly right. Yeah, they'll make sure you have all the right gear. Um, nope. And there are, of course, places that in, in a lot of caves that you don't want to go because of archaeological artifacts and things like that. Right. Uh, there are a lot of caves with uh, high numbers of bats. Most of these caving organizations will avoid those areas uh-huh. at critical times. Yeah, and and uh, I can imagine with those with those organizations too, they probably organize groups to go visit caves too, as opposed to just sending you out on your own or you and your buddy. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, there's a social aspect to it. You know, you get to know people. Right. Go as a group. Yeah. Uh huh. So while we're on it, we've touched on bats a little bit. I think we have a little bit of time. Do you want to touch on uh, – we touched on the tricolor, but the northern long-ear. What's going on with it? Yeah, yeah. northern long-eared bat. This is um, the bat that's declined the most because of white-nose syndrome. Mm. Uh, back when I started my career in biodiversity in 2012, it was pretty common in forest. You know, we could catch a lot of uh, these northern long-eared bats. But um, since, you know, the introduction of white-nose syndrome, they've declined by about 99%. So there's wow. only been a wow. few northern long-eared bats observed in Tennessee in the past two years. I think there's been two. Huh. 
And, you know, so the Fish and Wildlife Service, they initially uh, listed them under the Endangered Species Act as threatened back in, I believe it was 2015. But because they've con continued to decline, they've elevated the northern long-eared bat to endangered, or they're proposing to elevate it to endangered. Uh, we'll know in November their final decision. But, you know, again, that's warranted. Mm -hmm. These bats are, their populations may be gone one day. Mm. But, um, you know, like I said earlier, listing these species will provide us with uh, some federal money to do more monitoring. And there are some areas uh, within their range that aren't impacted by white nose syndrome. So the Gulf Coast, or well, not the Gulf Coast, but the Atlantic Coast, coastal plain over in North Carolina, South Carolina, they have some populations of tricolored bats, and they don't have caves, so they don't have white nose syndrome. Oh, okay. So hopefully those pockets, even if we do lose all the northern long-eared bats in Tennessee, hopefully they'll hang on over there on the coastal plain. Yeah. I know recently y'all were doing some some uh, tree habitat or like these fake these poles that look like trees and having places for them to, to to den or whatever you call it. Is that helping with some of that or what? What do those those structures help? Yeah, our artificial trees. Yeah. artificial trees. Um, those are primarily focused at. Uh, uh, for maternity colonies for the endangered Indiana bat. Indiana's, okay. Yep. So uh, we did a migration study several years, started back in 2013, but we tracked some of these female Indiana bats to Wilson County, mm -hmm. and they were on private property. So our wheels were turning. What can we do to protect <laughs> these animals? You know, we hoped they'd go to public land, but they threw us a curveball. But we ended up getting to know these landowners, and uh, they're absolutely great people. We ended up getting a lease agreement um, so we could go in, get access to their property, oh, and install some of these artificial trees. And I think we installed the first trees back in 2020. And within months, a maternity colony of Indiana bats started oh, to use neat. this tree. And so, you know, there's probably competition for uh, these these dead trees with sloughing bark that get a lot of sunlight that are just good places for these Indiana bats to, to give birth and to raise their young. And so, you know, this just provides more of that roosting habitat for the for the species yeah and they can the maternity colony continues to grow we had a high count of, of 40 uh, indiana bats this year so on that property yeah. on that property wow so really good good project so uh did you know that number that many were bats were coming to that area or using that area before you had the the tr fake trees up we knew that there were a lot a lot but yeah. they move around so the trees that they use um these dead trees with a lot of sloughing bark the bark usually only stays on the tree a year uh -huh. then the maternity colony moves on to another tree so they're almost impossible to follow around uh -huh. but you know that's another advantage of having these artificial roost trees that last a long time yeah. is we can monitor them over time yeah that stuff doesn't that doesn't fluff off like the others you know and uh, it makes it easier for them to come back and have a home there. Yep. What kind of material emulates the bark on those? It's those uh, trees? it's almost like a rubber. Um, oh, okay. So it lasts. It lasts a long time. Yeah, yeah. longer than the tree, uh, the the untreated telephone pole <laughs> okay. that it's mounted on. For I sure. gotcha. Yeah. Wow. Very innovative. You guys are innovative, <laughs> yeah. coming up with ways to do stuff that just amazes me we, yeah. all the time. We've said a lot on this show that we got a lot of uh, smart people in the agency oh, that man, I know jack that. of all trades. I mean, they can do just about anything, come uh -huh. up with these habitats or fix a tractor or, or new ways to plant or new ways to do this or that. that exactly. It's, it's amazing. So we got a lot of cool people in the agency, a lot of... 
Go ahead. I learn something new from them every day. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not one of those? No. I don't think I, so. I think you are. I think you are. <laughs> Doing some good work, and uh, it's been great to learn about the, the Tennessee Cave Salamander. Uh, and it's the state amphibian, so that's pretty cool, too. And, yeah. Uh, so uh, we appreciate people tuning in and listening and learning about some of this stuff on, on Wildcast and appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this information with everybody. Thanks for having me. Always happy to talk about Tennessee's biodiversity. We live in a special state. It's good to celebrate it. All right. Definitely a special state. From east to west, we got it all, so it's pretty cool. Well, this is Tennessee Wildcast. Don, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dustin. Dustin, thank you again. Uh, keep tuning in. Keep coming back. Uh, visit tnwildlife.org for everything uh, Tennessee wildlife and, and uh, get your license. Get outside. Uh, check out the e-store for the new hat. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Stay connected with TWRA by visiting our website at tnwildlife.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, it's all about Tennessee wildlife. It's what we do.